Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Mind Flow with Joe. I'm your host, Josie Libero, and on this week's episode, I sit down with Dr. Madeline to talk about racism and reproductive health care. I hope you enjoy. I just don't think that you can talk about reproductive health and sexual health if you're not also talking about the intersectionality and how racism plays a huge role in health disparities that we see. Um, I am a public health major and something that I've noticed a lot in my classes is that we talk about health disparities. We talk about the fact that we see that black women have worse health outcomes, but we never talk about why. Like, why is that happening? And I think that when you don't talk about why, you start to put the blame on the people who are experiencing the disparities instead of the institutions, systems, and people that are actually causing the disparities. So that's why I think it's really important that we have a conversation about it and that we start just talking about it and not making it so taboo and just let's say these are the systems that are failing us and this is how we want to do better. Um, So that's why I care about this. That's why I really wanted to talk about it. And today I am inviting Dr. Madeline on to talk about racism and reproductive care, her experience in it, what she's seen in the work that she does, and then her own research. Dr. Madeline is a board-certified OBGYN physician. She has her MD and MPH. She's a public health epidemiologist, mentor, consultant, and former CDC scientist. So now I am going to um, ask Dr. Madeline to join us. Sure. (laughs) So thanks again for the invitation. Um, I am uh, Dr. Madeline, um, and I know that you gave me a, a generous introduction, so just very briefly, I'm a board-certified OBGYN, um, published author, international speaker. I worked with um, uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for 21 and a half years, um, had a great time doing public health applied epidemiology, mostly in the area of sexual health. I'm also um, a part-time faculty member at Morehouse School of Medicine in the Department of OBGYN. And most of what I do these days involves both uh, clinical care and also some uh, public health entrepreneurship. So I love consulting and um, and just, you know, trying to help women access accurate GYN information and, um, and birth control. So I love that you talk about birth control most times um, because I think that the more women can access those types of things, the more freedom and control they can have over their lives. And so um, I'm excited to be here with you today. Thank you. Absolutely. Everything that you said that you do is everything I want to do. So it's really cool to just be able awesome. to talk to you. Um, Awesome. So what made you to decide to um, pursue a career in public health, but then also in medicine? Oh, well, thank you for that question. So, um, you know, it's really interesting. I wanted to be a, a doctor since I was a, a little girl. Um, I don't know if you've been um, on my page, but this month I've been trying to post some different people who inspired me um, for Black History Month. Yeah. Um, one of them was a childhood pediatrician who I used to see when I was a little girl. Um, I think he was my first, the first person that I encountered, encountered that I was like, oh, okay, this is pretty interesting. I like what he does. I think the next person that inspired me when I was 13 years old, I had this sudden onset of lower abdominal pain and some nausea and vomiting. And um, my mom took me to the emergency room and I had appendicitis. 
when I woke up in the hospital the next day, they had removed my appendix, and I thought it was the coolest thing. This general surgery surgery resident had come to my bedside with my appendix in a little cup, yeah. and um and showed me my appendix, and I was like, how cool is that? Like to to yeah. be in medicine and be able to take care of patients, but also do surgery and remove something that was causing someone discomfort. I thought was just the coolest thing ever. Um, it wasn't until I got to, um, I was already accepted into med school that I learned more about public health. And so I think my thought process was, you know, I'm, I'm a city girl. I'm from Harlem, which is up to Manhattan uh, in New York City. And so, um, my, uh, my, uh, perception about healthcare was that outside of those rare moments when, um, I went to the pediatrician's office, a lot of stuff was done ERs of either Harlem Hospital or Columbia Presbyterian um, Medical Center. And so my thought when I was accepted into medical school, my thought was that I would be exposed to both individual patient care and management as well as community-type patient care and, um, and management, which is what public health is. Yeah. But I was wrong. So when I, um, so Columbia is, is great because it has both uh, the uh, College of Physicians and Surgeons, which is the medical part, and the uh, Mailman School of Public Health. So when at that time when they accepted the medical school class, they invited us to a week-long series of uh, seminars that would introduce us formally to the MPH, the Master's in Public Health degree, which is um, something I really didn't know a lot about at the time. And I thought, okay, how ridiculous is that? Because certainly I'm going to learn about public health in med school. And I was wrong. And after that week of really getting into the detail of what was involved with a master's in public health compared to um, the doctor of medicine that I was going to get, um, I was convinced that public health was really something that I wanted to do. So I, um, I went into the joint degree program. And um, at that time, I think we were the last class that was able to do both degrees in four years. Um, I think now when um, medical students get the MPH, they have to add an additional year. But um, so that's how I got introduced to public health. I fell in love with it. And um, early on in one of my maternal and child health public health classes, I was sitting in a class with this one professor who also happened to be a black female OBGYN. And she talked about some of the historical legacies related to um, how uh, black women early on in this country and Native American women and um, Hispanic Latina women yeah. were, um, were treated when it came to medical care. And um, there was one gynecology textbook in particular that she referenced on a slide, and it just kind of stuck with me. And I think when I began to really see and understand how some of the racial and ethnic disparities were kind of playing out in the world of OBGYN, it really um, made me more impassioned about not only going into OBGYN as my specialty, but also doing public health to be able to, um, you know, access some of the data, create some of the uh, science that could drive some of the policy to improve outcomes for women. So. so awesome. That's literally so awesome. Um, thank you. So thank you. How did you get your job at the CDC? Like, was that your first job out of college? Oh, great question. So my my path, and you said you're uh, currently a public health major, right? Yeah. 
Okay, okay. So my path was, um, I was a psych pre-major, pre-med major undergrad. And then I did um, four years of med school, four years of OBGYN residency, and then I went to the CDC. So CDC has this great program called the Epidemic Intelligence Service Fellowship, Mm -hmm. and it's a two-year fellowship training program that really allows you to do hands-on applied public health. And so um, I finished residency. I'm a native New Yorker. I'm a New Yorker all day. Mm -hmm. I came to Atlanta, thought I was only going to stay for the two years to do the fellowship, and ended up staying for much longer. Um, But it was a a great fellowship. So when you... um, if you, if there are uh, outbreaks, disease outbreaks, or even national natural disasters, mm-hmm. they send CDC will oftentimes send what we call disease detectives, and those are EIS officers. So um, I happen to be one, and and many are um, are physicians, but there are also nurses, there are PhD epidemiologists, there are um, pharmacists and vets who all go through the EIS program. And, um, you know, after different public health situations, we or during different public health situations, we're the ones that kind of go hit the ground, um, collect data, make sure people are okay, do help with triage. Yeah. Um, EIS officers have responded to everything from COVID-19 to Zika outbreaks to Ebola uh-huh. to um, uh, Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. And so uh, EIS officers do a wide range of things. And I ended up staying after those two years, staying on as a full-time epidemiologist. That's so awesome. Thank you so much for that. Oh, of course, of course. Is that something that you're interested in pursuing? Um, I'm definitely interested in, like, the CDC. And just, okay. I don't know, that's, I think every, like, public health person is like, oh, that's, like, the hub of public health, the CDC. So <laughs> just getting involved in that is so cool. Awesome. So my next question for you is, um, you talked a little bit about this when you talked about um, your your schooling and how you had professors who kind of leaned into talking about health disparities. Um, but just how comfortable are you speaking out against uh, racial injustice in healthcare? And has that changed as you have like gotten older or just been in the field longer? I'm very comfortable uh, speaking out about it. I would say I, I've probably gotten more comfortable as I've gotten older. So, you know, I'm, I'm very much, I love data and I love science. And so even though as a child growing up in Harlem and, or, or as a, as a young black female experiencing things firsthand, I still wanted to be able to define things scientifically. And so, um, you know, that's one of the reasons I went to CDC. Even before I went to CDC, I had a couple of really good, um, mentors who I worked with in terms of uh, data analyses and, and science to try to quantify what was going on and what we were seeing in terms of racial and ethnic health disparities, especially as they affected women. And so, um, so, so yes, I've probably gotten more comfortable talking about racial disparities over the years, especially when I can put some data behind it, because I think that we live in a society that's very much driven by data and evidence and, and all of that. And so I, um, I, I've definitely gotten more comfortable. That's awesome. So what has been your experience being a black woman in the healthcare field? So specifically as a professional? That's a great question. So, um, I've had the full range of experiences to 
uh, experiences that keep me very much aware about the fact that these um, disparities still exist. And one of the things that contribute to, contribute to those disparities are biases from providers. That's absolutely something I see. Um, but I also see, um, you know, I see hope and the the next generation of providers. One of the things that I do, even though it's just um, part-time, like I said at the beginning, a faculty at Morehouse, um, I do it partly because I love seeing the next generation who um, I think is a very important part of diversifying the workforce and, and putting a dent in some of those disparities that we see. When you look at the science and the data, it shows absolutely that um, – Black and brown healthcare workers can improve health outcomes for black and brown patients and populations. Yeah. And so I think that's absolutely something that is important for us to do, whether you're, excuse me, doing the clinical part of patient care or whether you're doing the research because you get to ask different questions and ask them in a way that might be more culturally tailored. That's awesome. I like that there's like that you, even though you have seen things, you still have a lot of hope, especially in the younger generation, because I think that that is really important. Um, what have been some of your biggest challenges in your career and how have you overcome them? Oh, um, probably earlier on, um, imposter syndrome, where you feel like you are not quite sure that you belong where you are. I probably had that most in medical school. Um, even though, so Columbia University is literally walking distance from where I grew up. And so even though I was not far from home and I felt very comfortable just going to the area where I grew up when I needed to, to get that home feeling, yeah. you know, I was in my med school class, of 150 people, uh, eight of us were uh, black and or Latino. And so, um, you know, the, the ratio being like that, you you kind of get this overwhelming feeling like, you know, oh, goodness, you know, yeah. am I supposed to be here? I was very fortunate. I had not only a strong support network within Columbia University Medical School that we um, had a strong organization organization called uh, Black and Latino Student Organization, or BALSO, and uh, we supported each other a lot. We made sure that, you know, if someone was, um, if we didn't see them for a while, we went and checked on them, hey, you're okay, it's going to be okay. I had um, a very strong faculty mentor, um, attending faculty mentor who was a neurologist and who, um, you know, there are some times in med school, and I don't know if you plan to go to med school in the future, it is absolutely the hardest thing you will ever do. But it is rewarding. It is fulfilling. If, when you get through it, you're going to feel like, you know, okay, this is, um, I, I, I did it. But it is absolutely the hardest thing you will ever do. So there were a couple of times when I went to my um, my mentor, my advisor, and I was like, okay, I'm done. I'm going to quit. I'm just not going to stay here and do this. And it's so important to have the right mentor advisor because, um, you know, she each time she'd say, okay, sit down. She would stop whatever she was doing. She'd sit down. She'd give me real talk, you know, that type of tough love, to, you know, stop talking foolishness, what's going on. And then, you know, it would always conclude with her um, showing me love and support. And, you know, each time when I felt that way, I went to see her. And, um, you know, it, it got better. It gets better. And if you 
work hard and are dedicated, medical school is absolutely something you will get through, but it is the hardest thing that you will do. Yeah. Well, I plan to just stick with my public health um, and get my MPH, but yeah, I have a lot of friends who are pursuing medicine and they're just like, ah. and I'm like, that's all you. That's awesome. That's all you. Um, so flipping the scripts a little bit, what has been your experience being a black woman and being a patient to doctors? What has that been like? Oh, that's a great question. So, you know, it's, um, it's varied. I've had, um, some experiences that have been good. There have been some that have left me, um, concerned about what would happen if I were not someone who was knowledgeable as a, as a, um, as a physician. I can tell you, so my first, um, so back in the day, and I know it's no longer like this, but back in the day, you used to have to have a pelvic exam before you went to college. And uh-huh. so I remember, yes, yeah, it was like, even if you weren't sexually active yet, it was part of the standard thing that they did. Now that's like unheard of, you know, yeah. you see why I like science and data? Because we get, we get more science and data and we do better. We should do better. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, I went, it was uh, this a provider who was on my mom's insurance. And, um, you know, I went into the, the office. The nurses got me all set up in the room. And uh, there was a white male physician who walked in. He didn't introduce himself. The, the nurses in the room introduced him. Oh, this is Dr. So-and-so. He's going to do your exam. So without saying any words to me, he placed the speculum. You know, my, my legs were up in the, the yeah. footrest. He placed the speculum as he did. And I at the end of that process, I don't know if he ever said any words to me. But I said to myself, there must be a better way. Like, this can't be how it's meant to be for young women, regardless of race, ethnicity, to yeah. go through their very first pelvic exam experience like that, I thought was devastating. Um, it's one of the things that at least turned on that first light bulb of maybe women's health was something I might want to do. Um, fast forward to years later, I was um, an attending OBGYN, had been for many years, had had one son was in labor with my second son and um, felt my water break. And I said to the nurse, this nursing student was in training. I said, oh, you know, I just felt a gush. My water broke. She said, no, that's probably not what it is. And I'm looking at her like, I really do know what's going on. <laughs> I know what's going on. Um, but, uh, but, you know, those are two negative experiences on the positive side. I am, um, when I found my first OBGYN, I mean, we just, we connected and um, she was someone that I made sure I found for each of my deliveries after that. And so, um, you know, there have been some some good outcomes. That's awesome. I mean, obviously, all the negative experiences are horrible and tragic, but <laughs> the fact that like you also had positive experiences, I think is like hopeful and like, good to hear. So that's awesome. Um, so in your commentary that I did read, um, you discussed the multiple layers of health disparities in reproductive care. And I was just wondering if you could maybe give us, I'm like, sorry, I have a golden doodle who's barking. I don't know if you, okay. No, I, I heard it. And that was, oh, okay. Amazing. Um, because that's just what work from home is like now. It's just, yeah. dogs, babies, just everything's happening. Um, yes. 
But do you think that you could give us a little bit of an overview of just like those multiple layers of health disparities in reproductive care? Sure, absolutely. So what we did with that commentary, so, you know, when you opened up your um, mind flow with Joe this week, you spoke about how um, if people don't take the time to understand what some of those other layers are, sometimes the individuals themselves can be blamed um, for the bad outcomes that they're having. And that's kind of what this paper is meant to speak to. You know, when I um, first arrived at CDC, it was it was very much about in the area of sexual health, it was very much about blaming victims, so to speak. So, you know, whether it was HIV infection or someone acquiring an STD, the messages, the public health messages were very much about, well, you know, you had too many sex partners or um, you're out there being reckless because you're having sex without a condom. And, you know, those messages are not messages that are going to be effective and getting people to um, to think differently. But when you, what happens is when you look at these disparities and when you drill down, they really are all tied to what we call social and structural determinants of health. And what that means basically is that you have to go beyond the individual behavior. You have to look at, you know, what's going on in the um, in this person's context. Are they able to? Do they have a a, a job that allows them to earn sufficiently? so that they can get to what they need to get to, whether it's health insurance, um, whether it's child care. Um, if they aren't able to access health care, what are some of the reasons around that? Is it because of high cost? Is it because that the times that these that conflict with their uh, work schedules? So, you know, there are, are all these layers. And of, and of course, one of the um, foundational layers that, this country is only really beginning in the last year to talk more about is, is racism and how some of the historical legacies of racism have contributed to some of these disparities that we see today. And so, um, you know, those, you see it when you t- think about like um, how communities may be different. And then you have to also think about the historical redlining, which is something that happened years ago when certain communities could only be, lived in by certain people based on their race, ethnicity. And so um, it's vital that all of those historical things be factored in when we're thinking about or looking at the disparities as they exist today, because they don't exist in a vacuum. They exist in this context of all these things that have been going on for the last couple of centuries in this country that we haven't yet adequately dealt with in modern times to be able to, um, to really affect real change. Absolutely. I just, I, there's such a narrative that like people are choosing to be in their circumstances when really like they have been forced into them. And so I just, your explanation was so perfect and like such a good overview of like what is wrong and like how it is like holistic and there's so many layers to it. So just thank you for that. Oh, of course, of course. Um, so what would you say are some of the biggest barriers for a black woman trying to access reproductive care? So gynecological visits, um, prenatal care, contraceptives, why, why is it so hard to access those things? Great question. So some of it is tied to some of those uh, social and structural determinants that we talked about in terms of, um, you know, when we, 
look at what was going on in the last several months with COVID-19, and when you look at the fact that so many of those who lost their jobs were women, um, especially women of color, then you can see how some of this kind of plays out. And so, you know, for for many in this country, healthcare access or insurance is tied to, to jobs, not for everyone, but for a lot of people. Yeah. And then you also have, um, so Affordable Care Act was made law in 2010. Yeah. What we also know from data is that the number of women who were uninsured dropped drastically. When you look from 2010 to 2018, the number of women who were uninsured decreased drastically. And then we started to see some of that change in um, in those places that did not expand Medicaid or even with some of the recent legal challenges that have been going on. Yeah. It's made it more challenging for women to be able to maintain the access that they need. Um, so all of those things contribute to why we see differential access. And when it comes to outcomes, a lot of times what happens is that if there are barriers to accessing health care, you tend to wait later and later or until something is really an emergency before you make yeah. it in. And so when you look at what's going on in terms of uh, how sick someone may be or the fact that someone may die more quickly, it has to do with the fact that um, there is delayed access, and that's tied to not really having adequate health care and many other barriers that disproportionately affect women of color in this country. Thank you. Um, so sorry, just as you were talking, I started thinking and um, I actually read this article and I talked about it a little bit mm -hmm. on one of my Instagram posts, but it was about how um, um, black women and black babies health outcomes significantly change based on if they have like a white doctor or um, a black doctor. And I thought that that was just really interesting. And you, you kind of mentioned a little bit before, and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about this and like, have you seen that in like your own work? And like, I guess like, why, why does that happen? You know, um, more and more uh, professional organizations are talking about biases and or racism and how we probably haven't done an adequate job when we are training healthcare providers to um, to really be able to take a look inside and figure out and define what those biases are so that we can know how to put them in check when we're taking care of our patients. So um, there was a, a recent example in the media, if you're familiar with the case of Dr. Susan Moore. I think that situation really, really highlighted some of the gaps and biases and racism that was going on. You know, you have this this black woman. It should not have mattered that she was a female, um, a physician, um, but then it did because she knew what her treatment should have been. And um, you know, as a provider, there are just certain things that we do and ways we talk to people that she was describing were very different from what those norms should have been. And yeah. so, you know, she ended up. Um, being spoken to from what she described, being spoken to in a way that was inappropriate, um, being discharged and not being fully where she needed to be. And then, of course, un devastatingly, she ended up dying um, a few days after that. And then so you think that's that's part of the narrative. But then you add to that the hospital CEO putting out a, a letter that basically, in, in many ways, kind of blamed her. Oh, you know, people felt intimidated. And that's um, 
that's lingo that women of color see a lot, you know, especially black and Hispanic women. We hear a lot because people who don't have appropriate cultural context or who might have biases that they have not dealt with yet, they'll yeah. use those words to describe what they may not understand or, um, or to uh, use as a defense for what is, is clearly their bad behavior because this, this physician, who knows what her outcome would have been, but absolutely she deserved different care than what they gave her. And I'll go a step further. If it were, and I think even um, even she said this, if she were a white female physician, there's no way that she would have been spoken to that way or treated that way. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's just one of the recent media examples to kind of um, answer your question. So like... My next question for you is, how do you deal with this? Like emotionally, mentally, like how do you like have these experiences, see these things in the media, have like your own personal experiences and not like, I don't know, just curl into a ball and just be like, I need to stop. <laughs> like, how do you, how do you do that? You know, it's, um, I think part of it is that um, there are always patients out there who will need to have a voice that's different from the the persons at the, that Indiana hospital, for example, where Dr. Moore is. And so I think the more of us who are doing this work, like yourself, who are sensitive to the issues, who are concerned for our patients and their outcomes, I think that will definitely keep you hopeful when you're out there doing your public health work and it will keep you engaged even at those times when you feel that, you know, you, you can't do it anymore. And absolutely, I'm a big believer in self-care. And so, yes, you know, you do the work till you are um, tired, till you're exhausted, till you've helped all that you can. And then you absolutely have to make sure that you have some time set aside to take care of you because it is, um, it is very, I won't say easy, but it's very common that people can get burned out in this work. You know, when I was um, earlier in my career, when HIV was a, a, a bigger public health concern than it is now, it's still a public health concern, but back then it was, it was, um, it felt more urgent because people were dying. We didn't have as many effective uh, treatments as we do now. Um, people would get burned out a lot because they were, you know, looking at things going on and seeing death or even, you know, we can talk about 2020 where, you have um, providers dealing with the devastating losses of uh, people with COVID on yeah. a daily basis and really having to almost force yourself to schedule time away to say, you know what, I just need a minute. I need a minute for me. I just need to regroup. I need to make sure I'm okay. I need to make sure my family's okay. And then you kind of go back into it recharged and um, and wanting to do the best work you can for the people that you're taking care of. Absolutely. I'm a big proponent of self-care and making sure that like, yes. you're, you're good before you keep pouring into other cups. So, absolutely. absolutely. Um, so do you think there are any solutions? What, what types of things do you, I guess, like wish were being implemented to see some of this, these health disparities and some of these um, like racial biases kind of slowly decline? You know, that's a great question. I, I feel hopeful for some of the policy level changes that are happening. So, you know, a, a lot of this is going to take, it's, um, 
it's like an all hands on deck situation. You know, we, we need the policy changes. So things like the Affordable Care Act, when it's fully implemented, it's it's meant to include things like um, no copay for contraception. And you know that that's been one of the things that's been battled in the, the courts over recent years. Yes. Um, it's, it's supposed to include these things that should make it easier for all of us to access, especially women and especially women of color. Yeah. Um, the other thing I think that's going to need to change is, you know, and that takes longer changing people's hearts and minds as it relates to bias and racism. Some of the things that are happening at um, the local level include the implementation and development of um, these standardized protocols such that, you know, let's say uh, two women come in of different racial ethnic, ethnic backgrounds, but they have a similar diagnosis, similar clinical courses. The protocols being standardized will say, you know what, no matter which provider is taking care of these two patients with this clinical scenario, we agree that this is how they should be managed. And that way you have a standardized approach to how that person should be managed and cared for, and you remove some of the biases that can happen when someone has to, you know, subjectively decide whether this person is going to get a medicine or this person is going to get admitted or this person is going to get sent home. You remove some of those biases, you know what I mean? So um, I think that's also something that will help us start to see some changes. And then, of course, at the local levels, being able to um, definitely diversifying the uh, workforce more. So that, like you said, like those studies are showing, again, back to the science and the data, if the studies are showing that um, black and brown babies do better when they have more black and brown providers, then I think one of the things we should do is try to make sure we can have more black and brown providers. Absolutely. Um, so do you have any advice for um, a person of color or anyone who is getting treated poorly within like their health, with their health care? Um, just kind of like what what can they do if they feel like they are if they are not being treated well within the care that we're, they're receiving? You know, that's um, it's it's a great question. It's sometimes yeah. easier said than done because yeah. what I always like to tell patients, even even if they're seeing me, if if I'm not the provider who's listening appropriately to them, I encourage them to find someone who is hearing them, like really, really hearing them. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's a big part of it is, um, you know, making sure that someone is listening to you, like really, really hearing you. Yeah. Um, and when you find that person, like, you know, going with your pre-prepared uh, questions and notes and and spending all the time you need to get everything covered and addressed as needed. And um, I think that's definitely one of the ways. Some of the things that are uh, popping up that um, I haven't uh, implemented yet with uh, my patients, but I know they're happening in some other hospitals across the country, is um, I know that there's an app that's been developed whereby uh, women of color can share their experiences. So, for example, if someone has a recommendation for a provider who was really great with them, who had a great bedside manner, who listened to them, they can share that information in an app or with others and, and in a way basically, you know, um, strengthen the ability of people to find people who are 
uh, listening to patients appropriately. Another thing that I'm a big proponent of is, um, uh, again, the, the all hands on deck um, approach. So midwives, doulas, I, I love working with doulas. I think doulas are a great additional resource for women in pregnancy and postpartum because they can be a, another um, avenue for advocacy for the patient. They can um, answer additional questions that the patient might have outside of their time with the, uh, the, the midwife or the physician in the room. And I just think, um, you know, with the maternal mortality rates that we're seeing in this country, we absolutely have to be open to exploring all options so that women can, you know, have good outcomes and be okay. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much um, for doing this, for coming on, for sharing all of your knowledge. This was really informative for me and just helpful in general. So just thank you again. Um, Do you have anything else you would like to say before we say goodbye? Um, I just, I want to thank you for your platform. I think it's so important to, um, to, you know, talk with young people and get the word out there and also, you know, encourage young people who might also be interested in doing this work like you yourself, uh, public health work. And so I just thank you for doing this. I I know that it must be a lot with your uh, course load, but it's, it's important work. And, um, and I'm just grateful that you're here and that you're another voice for, for young people who are watching your, your platform. Well, thank you so much. And hopefully we can do this again sometime and talk about more things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially since you talk about birth control so much. Definitely. Yeah, no, I'm a definitely. big proponent of birth control. <laughs> Me too. Well, thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for okay. tuning in. Bye. Yes. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Joe. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Mindflow with Joe. If you like what you heard, make sure that you follow and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. If you want any say or if you have any questions about the topics at hand, make sure to follow me on Instagram at Mindflow with Joe. My DMs are always open.